Well, as we come now to receive the instruction of the word of our um, really amazingly good father, uh, I want to remind you of the goal of this part of our service. Uh, it is not primarily an exercise of the mind, it's, it's an exercise of the heart. So in other words, when we come to the word of the Lord, whether we do that individually, personally, throughout the week, or we come together around the word of God as a community of faith like we're doing now, we're not coming with the question of God, what does your word say? We're coming with the question of God, what is your word saying to me right now. So it's not about getting the fact patterns. It's not about learning who the major characters are. It's not about coming to understand the history that undergirds the stories and learning what the basic lessons of the stories are. It's learning what the lesson is for me today in this season of my life as the Word of God finds me, as the Lord Himself, by His Spirit and through His Word, finds me. And so as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke today, come with that kind of heart. Lord, I'm not just bringing you my mind, I'm bringing you me. And here's what I want to know. What is your word saying to me now? So today we're going to continue with our study of the gospel of Luke. We're at almost the end of the book. So let me rehearse what happened last week because it's very significant. Last week we watched Jesus be arrested by the religious leaders of the Jews and two to six hundred soldiers who came with them in the garden of Gethsemane and then forcibly taken back to the home of the high priest where he was mocked, beaten, and abused by those soldiers, denied three times by his preeminent apostle, his most faithful follower, and in his presence at least the third time. And then during this night of indignity, he then also had to sit there and listen to the religious leaders of the Jews. Now think about that for a minute, because these are the people you would assume would be the most godly who were the most ungodly. These are the people who you would assume would be the most authentic and full of integrity and, as it turns out, are the least. He had to, amidst all of these abuses, all of this mocking, all of these denials, oh, in addition to that, he had to sit there and listen to the spiritual kings of the people of God, of the nation of Israel, argue with one another all night long, not over how to provide him with a fair trial, but over how to deny him a fair trial. Not over how to make sure that Jesus gets justice, but how to make sure that he doesn't. And certainly not over how to really and truly discover the truth about who Jesus is so that then they and everybody else could respond appropriately to Jesus, but instead to make sure that doesn't come out. They didn't care about the truth. They hid it from themselves and from everyone else. And here's why. Because unlike Jesus in that story who in that story and in the story that we're going to look at today, loves and values, are you listening for a personal message? You, more than anything else, more than all the things in heaven. I mean, the gospel is that Christ forsook all of the riches of heaven, all of the comforts of heaven, all the prestige of heaven, all of these things to enter into this planet. I left heaven to come here. As a first century Galilean Jew peasant slave of the Roman Empire, no less, for you. And then forsook all the things of earth, including his own life, for you. Okay, these guys did all of this because unlike Jesus, who in that story and in the one that we're going to look at today, loves and values you more than anything else, including himself... These guys loved and valued themselves and the things of this world, you see more than anything else, including Christ. And so then the question that we walk into this story with today is a simple one. It's what do I love and value? What do I love and value most? Is it really Jesus, my King, and the eternal things of his eternal kingdom? Or 
Is it really myself? And the other things in this world that I bend my life around, that I pursue as though they themselves are life as opposed to Christ. What is it? Which is it? And here's how you know. Here's the clue. You know by what you do with Jesus. So let's watch what these guys do. We pick up our study today in Luke 22, beginning in verse 66, where Luke says this. He says, when the previous night during the mockings and all, when all of that other stuff that I just described happened, when the previous night had ended and day came, and in the ancient world, daytime, the sunrise was the time of justice. And you can see sort of metaphorically why that would be. It's the time of day when light chases away the darkness. It's when trials were held. So when day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council to officially do to Jesus what they had already done the previous evening, which was to condemn him to death. And so then this council, very strategically, said to Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us, but not so that we can lay down our lives in faith and submission to you, Jesus. We've already decided that's off the table. We don't even care if, in fact, you are the Christ. Truth is not a part of this proceeding. We just need you to say this so that we can put you to death. And, you know, I mean, maybe you're just joining us for the first time, and this is part 46 of this series, and so you've just walked into the last five minutes of the movie, and you're going, hey, whoa, why do they want to put Jesus to death? And the answer to that is simple, because they loved and valued themselves and the things of this world more than anything else, including Christ. And they rightly rightly understood Jesus to be a threat to the things of this world for them. Because think of it this way. These guys reigned and ruled over the people of Israel, spiritually speaking, like kings. Power, prestige, influence, wealth, all of these things came from this rulership. All right, well then, if Christ is actually the king, what happens to their little perishing kingdoms? See how they go away? Here's what they missed, and it's the same thing that we miss when we favor our little perishing kingdoms over Christ. They miss the opportunity to take their little kingdoms that were going to perish anyway, and indeed at this point, long ago did, and to fold them into his kingdom, a kingdom that actually lasts and for forever. The opportunity to invest their lives in something that never ends and that ever blesses. All we think about is what we're going to lose. Let's think about what we're going to gain. Well, they can't think that way. It's not human. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. And so then they're thinking to themselves, and we need to credit them for this. They got it. They're thinking, wait a minute, if Christ is king, then Christ is king. And what they understood is that if that's true, well, then they and we cannot continue to live the same way. We can't live as if he isn't. And so, when day came and the time of justice, we'll put it in quotes, arrived, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council to, again, officially do to him what they had already decided to do the previous night, which is to condemn him to death. And then this council said to Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us so that we can take this statement, we don't care about whether or not it's true, and march it down to Pilate, as we'll see here in a minute, and use it as part of our plan to coerce him to put you to death. But Jesus, who's obviously aware of all this, then says to them in response, and he unmasks them with this. He says, even if I tell you the answer to that question, which, by the way, the whole Gospel of Luke says is yes. The answer, by the time you get to this part of the narrative, is obvious. And it ought to be obvious to them. 
Jesus unmasks them. He says, look, this is completely insincere. The whole thing is a fraud. Even if I tell you the answer to that question, you will not believe me. And here's how I know that you will not believe me. Because A, you guys know the word of God. So you know what the prophet said the Christ would come to do. And B, here's the deal. You've been investigating me intensely from the beginning of my ministry until this moment. You and your minions have been following me everywhere I went, taking careful notes on everything I said and everything I did, and here's what you've seen, and it's in accordance with what the Scripture said the Christ would come to do. You've seen me miraculously heal tens of thousands of people of incurable diseases. I'll just recite a few. The blind, drumroll, see. That is not a common cold. That is not a stomach virus. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The mute speak. And without speech therapy, just like automatically. Paralyzed people who have been consigned to a mat for decades get up and without any physical therapy that helps them regain their musculature and teaches them how to walk, you know, since it's been decades... No, 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 fully restored. Get up, take the mat, walk away. Lepers cleansed and then sent to these men to officially, in accordance with God's law, be declared clean. Jesus said, you you know about all that. That wasn't done in a closet. I, I, I didn't do that in the dark. I wasn't hiding out in a corner. More than that, you know that I have commanded the power of nature. I I have overseen nature itself. Like, who does that other than God? I command the wind and the waves. Try that one at the beach. I walk on the water. Do you have a pool? Give it a go. Just don't have your phone in your pocket, okay? I take food, and before thousands of people... I take a little boy's lunch and I miraculously multiply it and divide it and send it out amongst this crowd. I take water and change its properties into wine at a wedding. I'm not hiding these things, guys. You know all about them. More than that, you know that I have even raised the dead. In fact, there is a man named Lazarus, and you guys know all about him because he lives only a few miles away in the town of Bethany. And in fact, John in his gospel talks about how these guys became aware that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead really and truly and how they had conspired to put Lazarus to death to get rid of the evidence. More than that, Christ had said, look, even if a man is raised from the dead, referring to himself, you will not believe And that's where this story is ultimately going. Just as he said he would, and they all knew that he said he would, that's why they put guards at his gravesite. On the morning of the third day, he came forth from the grave, and the guards came running to these guys and said, okay, so what's our story now? And they made up a fraud to cover it up. See, nobody in the days of Jesus, I mean, plenty of people do this today, but nobody in the days of Jesus were arguing over whether or not Jesus really did all of this stuff. No one. The Jews wanted to kill Christianity immediately. I mean, they killed Christ, and then they started wanting to kill the disciples. And I mean, you know, if you know the story, they have every motivation possible to try to stamp it out. The one thing they never argued with is the fact that Jesus did all of this stuff. The Romans for three centuries wanted to put Christianity to death. They tried, literally. The one thing they never argued with is that Jesus did each one of these things. You can't. There were just too many people walking around who knew all about it. Let me read to you a first century account. 
a witness, a man named Flavius Josephus, a first century historian, born only a few years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's what he says in his Antiquities of the Jews. He's very well known. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. Why? For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of men or such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, says Josephus. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, that's what we're going to look at today, Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. Oh, really, Josephus, why is that? For he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct at this day. So these guys... Say, hey, tell us if you're the Christ. And Jesus says, all right, look, let's just have a moment of honesty. I know that that's a little unique in this proceeding, but let's just do this. Even if I tell you, you're not going to believe good grief. Look at all of the things you've had to hurdle in your unbelief. And more than that, he goes on. He says, look, if I ask you guys any questions, and we've seen this again and again in this study, you will not answer them. You've refused to do that all along. Why are you going to start now? And now what Jesus does is he looks beyond. He looks into the future. And what he sees is how the whole thing is going to end for these guys and for him and really also for us. And it's not in suffering and it's not in crucifixion and it's not in death and it's not in a grave. It's not even in resurrection and ascension, but instead it all ends like this. And all of our lives are measured by how they end. It ends with Christ on the throne. And these men, confessing together with everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that all includes us, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Jesus looks forward, even in this moment, and he sees that, and so certain is he of that end result that he speaks of it as though it's already occurred. So he says this, He says, but from now on, the Son of Man, that's Christ, shall be seated, here we go, at the right hand of the power of God on the throne of the universe. And so they all grasped onto that, but for their own purposes, to do away with him, not to bow down to him. They all said to Jesus, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am, which I know sounds awkward, but it means yes, okay? And that's clearly the way they take it, because they then said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from, our, from his own lips. And then they all you know, fell to their knees in front of Jesus and worshiped him as Savior and King. No, they don't want a king. That's the point. They don't want a king. So they condemn him to death. And we know that because Luke then says in chapter 23, verse 1, he says that then the whole company of these men arose. So you can see the unanimity in this. And they brought Jesus before Pilate. And you say, well, why did they have to do that? Because for all of the powers of self-governance that the Jews were, in fact, delegated by the Romans, and that was a lot, they could not put anyone to death. And death of Jesus is the goal. So here's the deal. They are now in the position of needing to get Pilate to put Jesus to death for them. And so then, they began to accuse Jesus to Pilate, and notice how they changed the charge. It's very skillful on their part. It's brilliant, and it's brilliantly wicked. No regard for the truth. 
So they began to accuse Jesus to Pilate, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. So they're charging him with being an insurrectionist. He's trying to gather up a bunch of people to, you know, start an insurrection against Rome. Okay, that's a lie. Lie number one. We found this man misleading our nation. Here comes lie number two. And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. No, no, that's not what he said. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. That's what he said. And then here's the crux of it right here. And saying that he himself is Christ and Pilate, you know, you're not such a bright guy. So we're going to define Christ for you just to make it absolutely clear that he himself is a king, which is true, but misleading. For as you see in the gospel of John, as Pilate interacts with Jesus, Jesus says to him, yeah, I'm a king, but hey, here's the thing. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then my disciples would have fought to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. And so then he's really not, at least directly, a threat to Caesar and to Rome, but that's how the Jews present him. And that's clearly how Pilate, at least initially, hears it, because he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And I just want to stop and explain what's happening here, because what's happening here is a power play on the part of the Jewish religious establishment on Pilate. And they know that he's vulnerable. The deal is that Pontius Pilate was appointed as the procurator, or as the governor of Judea, this region of land called Judea that included Jerusalem, incidentally, but not Galilee, as we'll see in a minute. He was appointed about four to seven years prior to this story that we're looking at, and he was appointed as procurator or governor of Judea by the emperor whose name was Tiberius, and he was recommended for this appointment by a mutual friend that Pilate shared with Tiberius, whose name was Sejanus. And Pilate's job was effectively to do two things. Number one, keep the peace. Number two, collect the taxes. And in that order, because those two things are related, a peaceful land is a productive land. You can collect more taxes from it. A land of unrest, not so much. So keep the peace was primary job, collect the taxes was secondary. And in regard to the primary job of keeping the peace, Pilate at this point had a very miserable track record. One of the first things that Pilate did, and in ignorance and in foolishness and in frank stupidity, complete insensitivity to the people that he was given charge over, that he obviously in arrogance took no time to get to understand the sensibilities of, one of the first things he did was to take pictures of this Roman emperor Tiberius, probably thinking Tiberius would be jacked and honored by this, And he posted them all over the city of Jerusalem. Now, from the perspective of the Jews, who he's now the governor of, that was outrageously offensive because the Roman governor was worshipped as a god, and so therefore, the Roman emperor was worshipped as a god, and so therefore, it was like he took idols and just littered their holy city with them. And so these guys, in an uproar, marched down to the city of Caesarea, which is located on the Mediterranean Sea. It's stop number one on our tour. When we go to Israel, it's beautiful. And it was the seat of governance for all of Judea. It's where Pilate reigned from. And you're like, well, why was he in Jerusalem then when all of this was happening? Because he would come up for the feasts and festivals of the Jews because the city population would swell many times over. So he would come up with a heightened military force. Why? Because primary job is keep the peace. So he happens to be in town for this. But after he litters their city with idols, at least from their perspective, they march down to Caesarea, and for five days and nights, they protested loudly 
And Pilate then, to try to get rid of them, sought to scare them off by sending his soldiers and dispersing them amongst the crowd. And then at a given moment, they all pulled their swords out like they're going to kill all these guys. And here's what the Jews did. They called his bluff. They said, go ahead. It says that they bared their necks and said, do it. Cut my head off. Go ahead. We're not going anywhere. And because Pilate knew that if he slaughtered all of these people, really just because he was kind of insensitive and maybe not so smart, he would have a general uprising on his hands. Job number one is keep the peace. So he backed down and he took down all of these pictures, all of these idols. But it just kept getting worse. So he wanted to build an aqueduct, for example, in Judea. And everything was going well until the Jews discovered that he was siphoning money off of the temple treasury to do it. And that caused another uprising. That one was violent. Not long after that, you would think that he'd get the message, but apparently not. He decorated one of his palaces in Jerusalem with shields, like a shield that a soldier would carry, that bore the name of Tiberius. And the Jews interpreted that as idolatry too. And this time they said, look, we're we're done dealing with you. We're going directly to the emperor. And they petitioned Tiberius himself to have these things removed and no doubt recounted all of the stupidity of Pilate, which I'm sure he was really thrilled about. And Tiberius was furious with Pilate and commanded him to take the shields down. And more than that, by the time they now show up with Jesus and yet another uproar, Sejanus, their mutual friend, Pilate and the emperors, okay, had been executed by Tiberius. So Pilate's feeling the heat, guys. He is really, politically speaking, on the hot seat. And the Jewish religious establishment, who hate him and who he hates, knows all about that. And they carefully craft this charge against Jesus in such a way as to almost leave him no choice but to put Jesus to death. For they come to him saying, hey, this guy is an insurrectionist and he claims that he is the king of the Jews. All right, here's the problem with that from Pilate's perspective. There was exactly one thing that for sure Caesar did not tolerate, and it was a rival king. Feel the pressure? And yet he resists him. He resists these guys. You'll see that. But for purely selfish reasons. So then Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered Pilate the same way that he had answered the previous question. He said, you have said so, which again sounds awkward, but means yes. However, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the, and the crowds, he said, I find no guilt in this man. All right, why did he do that? Because, I mean, he's, you know, he's on the hot seat, like it's heating up under. He's got to know that that's the deal. Well, because A, again, he hates these guys, really does not want to do any of them. And I think he is sadistically enjoying the fact that they need something from him. That's far more clear in John's account. And that is entirely self-serving has nothing to do with fairness, justice, truth, or really Jesus. Secondly, I think that he's doing this because Matthew tells us that he's getting private messages from his wife saying, hey, whoa, I had a vision about this guy, and I'm thinking you ought to just, you know, don't do anything wrong in regard to him. You just need to leave this guy alone. So I think he's scared. That's entirely self-serving too. And thirdly, having examined Jesus, uh, I don't think he thought And you'll see this again and again three times that Jesus really was guilty of anything deserving of death. In fact, he proclaims him innocent again and again and again and again. Now, he'll send him to the cross anyway, which tells you fairness, justice, all that stuff he doesn't care about. 
But he very famously, in another gospel, literally washes his hands publicly of the blood of Christ. I think he is saying, listen, this is an injustice. You guys are forcing me into this. I'm going to do it. Which tells you about my character, motives, and what I love and value. But I want to publicly disassociate myself with this. And again, what is that? It's selfishly motivated. What does Pilate love and value most? Because it's not fairness, justice, truth, Jesus. It's himself. It's his life. It's his career. It's his pride. It's his ability to stick it to these guys because they're his enemies. And here's how you know. By what he does with Jesus. It doesn't end well. He says, I find no guilt in this man, but the religious leaders of the Jews were urgent, saying he stirs up the people. There's the insurrectionist thing again. Teaching throughout all Judea. And then they say, from Galilee. Now, that's not Pilate's jurisdiction. Even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether Jesus was a Galilean, because again, that's not his jurisdiction. And he would love to unload this problem on Herod. He bore the title king, Herod did, but he was a subjugated king, subjugated to the emperor, the real king, and sort of like Pilate, he had his own jurisdiction, and his jurisdiction was Galilee itself. And so he sent him over to Herod then when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod himself, we read now, was in Jerusalem at that time, and he's thinking, hey, you know what, here, you get to deal with him, and I hope never to see him again, (laughs) because I don't want any part of this guy and for purely selfishly motivated reasons. And now we read that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. But why was he glad? For he had long desired to see Jesus because he had heard about Jesus. And what had he heard? He had heard that Jesus was an amazing, incredible miracle worker. Everybody got that. Nobody disputed that. Everyone understood that. You would have been silly to question it in the first century when those things happened and people there all knew about it. It wasn't done in the dark. He had heard all of this about Jesus, and he was hoping to see some kind of a sign or miracle done by Jesus. And so what does he love and value? Well, he loves and values entertainment, certainly more than Jesus, as we'll see. The satisfaction of his boredom and his passions. He's hoping to get a free magic show out of Jesus is the idea. And you see what he loves and values by what he does with Christ. So then Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And meanwhile, the chief priests and the scribes stood by doing what they do all the way through this account, everywhere that they go, vehemently accusing Jesus to Herod. And then since Herod and his soldiers couldn't get Jesus to do a magic show, he was not complying. He wasn't playing along with all of this fraud, all of this silliness and wickedness. They decided to use Jesus as an object by which to entertain themselves Wickedly, it says, so then, or it says, Herod, and now notice this, with his soldiers. Do you see how Luke takes him off the throne and puts him down amongst these incredibly base men? It's degrading, but it's accurate. Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And then, arraying him in splendid clothing, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate, Luke notes, became friends with each other, at least in regard to their mutual disdain for Christ. That very day, but for before that day, they had been at enmity with each other. And then we read that Pilate, who probably was not excited to see Jesus back and 
now his problem yet again, called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. You've charged him with being an insurrectionist, and yet after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for look what he did. He sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by this man Jesus, but because it's really not about fairness, justice, truth, Jesus, and I mostly just value myself, and I kind of want to stick it to you guys on the one hand, while at the same time kind of covering my bases with Caesar, if this ever makes it back to him on the other hand, here's what I'm going to do. I will therefore punish and release Jesus. I will flog him. I will bring him very near death through torture. But that is not enough. They all cried out together, away with this man, and released to us a new character, Barabbas, whom Luke tells us was a man who had been thrown into prison for what? For leading an insurrection started in that very city of Jerusalem. So here's a real insurrectionist, unlike Christ. Oh, and also for murder. Now, what does Jesus do with death? He undoes it. It's a completely different gesture. The one takes life and brings death. The other takes death, and out of it he brings life. He is the mirror opposite of this man. And so Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death, and I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified and charging Pilate, as John makes clear in his gospel, with being no friend of Caesar. Now think about that. What are they telegraphing? They're saying, hey, you know, here's the deal. You deny this, and we're going to Caesar again, just like we did with the shields. And we're going to make our case that this Jesus is an insurrectionist who claims to be the king of the Jews, that we made all of these efforts with you, and you did not deal with him by putting him to death. That's what you do with rival kings, Pilate. So you want to play that game? And he doesn't. For we read, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate, unfairly, unjustly, and with complete disregard to the truth, decided that their demand should be granted, and he released this man named Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and who was in that prison, no doubt, awaiting death by by crucifixion, guys. He releases the true insurrectionist, who was awaiting death by crucifixion, for whom they asked, but he delivered the innocent Jesus over to their will to be crucified instead, and not just in the place of Barabbas, but in the place of all of us who claim his death as the payment for the penalty for our insurrection against God, for our rebellion against him, for all of our sin. And and again, why, why does Jesus go to the cross? Why does all this happen? Because unlike all the other people in this story who loved and valued themselves and the things of this world, all of which are perishing, by the way, You can take the perishable and invest it in the imperishable. But anyway, unlike those guys, Jesus loved and valued you more than anything else, including himself. And I can't help but wonder, you know, what those guys who made these decisions, these value judgments, who had these loves, if you will, that they love more than Christ, including themselves, think about their decision and behavior right now, today in this moment. 
Like if you could call them forth from the grave and interview them, what do you think they'd say? I wonder that about us. Now, I think through faith in Jesus, clearly we're, we face a different kind of eternity than these men are at the present enjoying. But, but Jesus has not saved us to love and value the things that they did. He's not made us new to, so that we can keep on living like we're not made new. He's not called us out of darkness so that we can go back into it and then just continue to live there. We're not to be like them. We're to be different. And so I think about things like time and money and comfort and pleasure, just to name a few. And I wonder, for example, if we'll get to the end of our lives and pass on into eternity wishing that we had spent more time in the transformational you know, things like personal worship and corporate worship and giving our lives away selflessly in service in the name of Jesus or thankful that we did not. Almost answers itself, doesn't it? I wonder if we'll get to the end of our lives and pass on into eternity wishing that we had tithed and been generous with our money or thankful that we didn't do those things. Or wishing that we had endured the discomfort, and it is uncomfortable, to talk to people about this Christ who really lived and did all of this stuff in whom life itself is truly found. Well, we wish that we had endured more of the discomfort of that Talk to more people about Jesus, or will we be thankful that we didn't, or wishing we had pursued purity more than pleasure, or thankful that we had not done it that way? All right. So what's the question? It's, what do you love and value most? Is it Jesus, your king, and the eternal things of his kingdom, or is it, is it, is it you, you know, for me? Is it me? Is it the things of this world? What does our value system look like? Here's how you know. What do you do with Jesus? Have you given him a fair trial, really? In everything he says, have you offered justice to all of his claims? All of them. About who he is, about what he does, about what wisdom really looks like. Have you gone searching for the truth about Christ? And the truth about what it means to live for Him and then given yourself over in faith and submission to do what He says. To live out His wisdom. To follow Him as He calls you to do. And, you know, like when you get to the end of your life and pass on into eternity, what do you think? Like, you think you'll wish you did that or not? Our lives are measured by how they end. Okay, so here's the deal. We don't just come to receive the instruction of the Lord to discover what it says. What we want to know is what does it say to me? What does it say to you? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Savior who is revealed within it, a real Jesus who really lived, who really suffered, who really died, who really rose again from the dead, who offers real and true forgiveness and cleansing and hope to any and all of us who come and claim that sacrificial death as the payment for our sin. Lord, that resurrection and that life is the promise, the deposit of our eternity. God, heal our blindness, cure our deafness, 
Remove that which holds us back from speaking, from praising, from sharing Christ with others. Make all the lame parts of us enlivened and capable of activity, of walking. Relieve us of our leprosy. And that which paralyzes us, Lord, I pray that You would, by the power of Your Spirit, remove it that we might take up our mats and walk and sing and dance and share the joy of knowing You and of living the life that You lay before us. So then, Lord, what are You saying, not just generally, but what are You saying to me and to each one of us? Make that message clear, we pray, and then empower us to go forth by the power of Your Spirit and community with this people to do what You have said. In Jesus' name, amen.